Hello and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski. And today, we're starting to get a little spooky. I mean, not too spooky. We're not talking about ghosts yet. Not yet. That, it's coming. October is coming. However, this week we'll be talking about the Speculum Alchemy and the occult nature of Prague during the reign of Rudolf II. But as always, before we get into that, I do want to suggest if you have any sources for me or any suggested topics you want me to cover, please email me those things at smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram where you can see highlights of the episodes and also you can interact through stories to help me get an idea of what you guys want to be listening to. And links to my Patreon and single donations through Venmo are in the show notes. So if you want to send some love, thank you. And as always, please review, download, follow, subscribe, share. All of that stuff is super helpful to grow the show. So just spread the love, guys. Just get it out there. Tell your friends. If you like it, tell somebody. And without further ado, let's get into it. So I mentioned the Speculum Alchemy, which is a occult laboratory located in Prague. However, before we dive into the place itself, we need to just get an idea of the overall climate of this time period where this laboratory was used. And in order to understand the sort of cultural climate, we're going to have to talk about Bohemian Christian occultism and the sort of Christian landscape of Bohemia. You may recall back in episode 4, I briefly talk about the Thirty Years' War that happened to Bohemia. So the stuff that we're going to be covering today is happening right before the Thirty Years' War breaks out. And Rudolf II kind of has a hand in how all these things occur, which is why most of this episode is going to be centered around him a little bit. Prior to the Thirty Years' War and the Bohemian Revolt, Bohemia, and especially Prague, were hubs for the occult and alchemaic sciences. Mainly due to the fact that most places in Europe around that time were adamantly opposed to anything that challenged Catholicism. In 1576, Rudolf II succeeded his father, Maximilian II, of the Holy Roman Empire, and in 1583, he moved the court to Prague. He was second to the Pope in Catholic faith and was of the Habsburg line. I think it's also important to point out that just before Rudolf was brought into power, Queen Elizabeth I was already reigning over England and was head of the Protestant church. And this is important because Protestantism was spreading fiercely, and although it was well tolerated in most areas at the time, tension had been building slowly after Martin Luther's opposing thesis to the Catholic church in the early 16th century. So the religious wars were building. However, this was sort of a brief period where the Catholic Church was not as aggressive because it had rulers like Queen Elizabeth and of the Habsburg line, you have Rudolf II. And we'll go into why he is very important to not only the Protestant Reformation, but also the occult world, despite being Catholic. And with Rudolf II ruling around the same time as Elizabeth I, occultism had this sort of reprieve post-Renaissance where the Inquisition was still trying to kill and imprison people who questioned the church. 
this sort of culture with these rulers allowed there to be less scrutiny. And because of this sort of reprieve, it helped give birth to things like the scientific revolution, as well as the later spiritualist movement. However, despite these things, the Inquisition was still happening, and we have to talk about that for a second. The Inquisition ran from the 11th century to the 17th century, and in 1184, Pope Lucius III sent bishops to southern France to track down the heretics called the Catharists. These efforts continued into the 14th century. During the same period, the church also pursued the Waldensians in Germany and northern Italy. This was sort of a chaotic pursuit because while the Inquisition was taking place, you have the Protestant Reformation and the earliest beginnings to the Scientific Revolution, which a lot of people refer to as the Alchemaic Revolution, although news to me, I mean, I just, I just found that somewhere, so fact check that. Although I have heard a lot of people refer to it as a sort of decline in the occult aspect of the Renaissance and the beginnings to the scientific methods that we use today. And although the Inquisition had been going on since the 11th century, in 1545, towards the end of the Renaissance period, the Council of Trent established the Roman Inquisition, which made things like humanism or any views that challenged the Catholic Church to be an act of heresy and punishable by death. So this was sort of seen as a countermeasure against the views that were circulating during the Renaissance. And in case you were wondering, the Council of Trent, in short, is the Roman Catholic Council that formed as a result of the Protestant Reformation. So this is all sort of culminating as things like Protestantism and occultism are rising. The Catholic Church is sort of trying to combat these things. And the Council of Trent as a whole is to serve against Protestantism, but they made this sort of inquisition that directly combats beliefs that circulated in the Renaissance. Joan of Arc is an iconic example of a woman killed for being a witch despite demonstrating devotion to Christendom. Also, I should point out that less than half of the executions were done by the Roman Catholic Church. The more gruesome courts were local ones where 90% of the people convicted were tortured and killed. And before you're like, oh, it wasn't the Catholic Church, they were putting out rhetoric that allowed localized governments to sort of feed into this. And they knew it. And they were fine with it. They didn't stop them. So they might not have been doing the direct killing to seem more wise and patient with the sinners. But this was all part of the plan. This was all part of what, you know, they were cool with it. And Joan of Arc is kind of an example of that because, again, she was sort of this self-proclaimed knight on behalf of the Catholic Church, on behalf of France's Catholic Church. And once she made herself an enemy of the English, the English captured her and just proclaimed her a witch because she dressed like a man and was their sworn enemy. So in that sense, it was more or less used as an excuse to kill a political rival. However... As I've mentioned in previous episodes, there would be young women who had nothing to do with the political landscape who would be tortured and killed for being a witch, even though most of them, like Joan, were God-fearing women. And you'll sort of see in how this episode plays out that despite a lot of men have been targeted by the church and a lot of men have to avoid 
persecution, they're on a different sort of level than most women who are most likely to be killed for this, despite even not even doing some of the things that the occultists were doing. Because you'll see the majority of occultists were men, and a lot of them were protected by the Holy Roman Empire, the Protestant Church, whatever. And, you know, Joan of Arc, despite the fact that she did a lot for France, once the English captured her and proclaimed her as a witch, the French were like, well, fuck you. You're on your own, bitch. And I'm not trying to say that the men, the occult men, were not imprisoned and, you know, had their own falling outs. But there's going to be one particular occultist that I'm going to mention. And his life story sort of signifies if men were persecuted, how it would have happened because this motherfucker went right up against the church and just shit talked them to their face and still lived to see the next day. So yeah, there's a bit of a bias, although this is all very contextual because again, so many different factors are brought into the chaos of Europe at this time. So yeah, there was the gender hierarchy. However, there are exceptions to every rule. But sadly, we're going to focus on the potential charlatans because I just like to talk shit on charlatans. Is that so bad? Is that so bad? Okay. Okay. Now we're going to talk about Rudolf II. He was born July 18th, 1552, and died January 20th of 1612. His mother was Maria of Austria and Empress to the Holy Roman Empire. Originally, she was the Princess of Spain, and she served as Regent of Spain in the absence of her father, Emperor Charles V, from 1548 to 1551. Because of this, Rudolf spent most of his childhood at the Spanish court. When Rudolf was still a prince, Nostradamus prepared a horoscope which was dedicated to him as prince and king. Many believe this inspired Rudolf into being more open-minded to the occult. Also, since rulers like Elizabeth I and Catherine de Medici were encouraging occultists, the political landscape for Rudolf growing up was one that often intermingled with the occult world. Because he spent most of his childhood at the Spanish court, his father grew concerned that he had more Spanish qualities rather than Austrian. And in case you're wondering, the Spanish court, I guess, was more aloof and introverted, whereas the Austrian court was more open. And a lot of historians speculate that being primarily raised at the Spanish court, he was allowed to be more introverted, and that would later sort of influence his rule a little bit, because he was also known for being not just a recluse, but also somebody that was highly paranoid. In the years following his return to Vienna, Rudolf was crowned King of Hungary, King of Bohemia, and King of the Romans in 1575, when his father was still alive. Once his father died in 1576, he became the Holy Roman Emperor. Shortly after, he moved the royal court out of Vienna into Prague for numerous reasons. One of those reasons being that he just preferred the culture of Prague, 
However, it was mainly to get further away from the border between Hungary and the Ottoman Empire, especially after a few attempts to take Vienna on behalf of the Ottoman Empire. So they wanted to get the fuck out of the area. And so Rudolf said, why not where all the occultists are in Prague? Let's go there. Although at this time, Rudolf wasn't necessarily dead set on occultism yet. He was still, you know, Catholic. And technically was the entire time, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. So this sudden move prompted the need for Rudolf to embrace things like occultism, Protestantism, as well as the Jewish faith because of the occult sciences that the Jewish people were bringing to Prague. Also, allegedly, one of his closest backers in Prague was a wealthy Jewish merchant who supplied many occultists with tools and herbs. So... He wanted to make nice when moving to Prague. He wanted to be nice to the neighbors. And then once he, you know, started seeing what was going on, he was like, oh, this is lit. This is awesome. Let's bring more of this shit here. And wouldn't you know it, he'd do just that. However, it's important to note that Rudolf was not so concerned with science in the sense that he wanted Prague to be known for its knowledge and he wanted to increase the accessibility to gaining knowledge, he didn't really care. <laughs> and similarly, he wasn't a patron of the arts in the sense that he wanted to inspire the people of Prague and promote this sort of golden age. He was really just superstitious. <laughs> and although during his reign, he employed a wide array of very reputable and iconic people that contributed to the scientific revolution, he was also very open to scam artists and swindlers and charlatans, which we'll get to. Also, <laughs> I stuck a little fun fact in my notes where I say, although his son was in Leo, his moon was in Cancer, and it was known among the court that, like many Habsburgs before him, he suffered from severe spouts of depression and paranoia, which... Yeah, that sounds about on brand. No offense to my son and Leo Moon and Cancers, but that's a combination. A very, I feel like, emotional combination. <laughs> Over time, he and his brothers began to grow distant for many reasons. Some say it was because one of the brothers married one of his chosen brides. However, it's unclear if he had ever really intended to marry her. He never got married. Very similar to Queen Elizabeth I. Didn't get married. It's rumored he had both male and female lovers. Although, I didn't dive too deep into that. I just know that he didn't get married. Honestly, in this time period, if you didn't get married, that was probably gay enough for some people. <laughs> oh, wait, I forgot. Um, He did have children out of wedlock with a few women. One of his mistresses, Katerina or Catherine or... Oh, I... I was perusing, I was going a million miles an hour and I saw it. I saw the name and I didn't write it down. So here we are. Regardless of who he married or didn't marry, rifts began with his brothers who slowly started taking back power in Bohemia, Germany, Hungary, and only left Rudolf with the empty title of Holy Roman Emperor. Although Rudolf did not get the plague or was murdered by his brothers, he did end up catching bronchitis and would end up refusing the advice of his doctor and exclusively seek out occult methods for healing, which a lot of people believe sped up the process of his death. 
And we'll go into why we no longer believe this, but we kind of know it did. But before we get into all that, I just want to note that many viewed Rudolf II as the sort of King of Solomon of Bohemia due to his interest in the occult work, his frivolous impact on European culture, and the slow but eventual demise after being stripped of his rank. Well, not really rank, but the power behind the rank was pretty much all gone. And because of those things, a lot of people equate him to Solomon's sort of impact on Israel and the Jewish occult world. So that's sort of the basis of Rudolf II's life. However, we're going to dive a little bit more into his ongoings in the alchemaic and occult landscape of Prague and the sort of people he was surrounding himself with. Towards the end of the 16th century, Rudolf II started inviting alchemists, occultists, and prophets alike to settle in Prague. A few of them were people like Roger Bacon, Athanasius Kircher, Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler, and Giordano Bruno. The two occultists in particular we're going to be focusing on today, though, are none other than Edward Kelly and John Dee from England. John Dee was a trusted advisor to Queen Elizabeth and was sort of known around the occult world as the Merlin to her Arthur. So he was one of the more successful occultists at the time. In this particular context, he sort of serves as a vessel for Edward Kelly to gain some notoriety in Prague as well as back in England. However, you're going to see a sort of toxic pattern between a lot of these occultists. And I mean both, you know occultists and astronomers and beginnings of scientists as well as the charlatans and how they intermingle because this just leads to a very toxic place for everybody and doesn't end well it just doesn't end well Oh god, here we go. Okay. Guys, the tea is hot. So, yes. Edward Kelly was the student of John Dee back in England, and after the two had disagreements, Dee headed back to England after living with him in Prague. So, let's get into why. <laughs> so, Dee ended up hiring Kelly in the first place because Dee was honest in his lack of ability to divine on certain levels. He was good at numerology, astrology, and necromancy, but not necessarily divining. And two episodes prior to this, I talk about how Dee had obtained an obsidian mirror from the Aztecs. So, you know, he's looking for someone to help him scry with it because he doesn't know how to do it, and he's an honest guy. And <laughs> just disclaimer, um... I am heavily biased in this, and it might come out because I am two bong rips in, and we're just, that's just where we are right now. And John D. is an interesting man. Very interesting. Questionable? Maybe a little bit. Kelly? We'll get into it. We'll get into that. So after several interviews, for some reason... Kelly was chosen as Dee's apprentice, and the two began work in England starting off. Eventually, Dee wanted to travel for certain reasons, a few of which being that among Elizabeth's court, he had a few enemies. 
things. So he kind of wanted to bounce for a little while, let things cool off. And so he decided to travel Europe. They tried Poland, and that just had a rocky start that didn't really amount to anything, so they left. And then they went to Bohemia, where they sought an audience with Rudolf II. And this is sort of where shit gets a little weird, because the initial suggestion to go abroad Europe was brought on by Kelly, who was telling Deed these were what the angels were telling him. Yeah, so, and what I mean by angels is whatever entities, deities that Kelly was supposedly talking to when scrying through the obsidian mirror. Kelly ends up saying that the angels wanted them to do specific things, like exchange possessions and their wives. So... Although Dee's son, Arthur, would later make statements such as, Kelly was a great man, and he always did my father well, and blah, blah, blah. I saw a lot of that while doing research. <sighs> the man was... Mm. And Dee, did he buy into it? Yeah, he did. And did it fuck him? Yeah, it did. In the long run... Dee's relationship with Kelly was just not good for him. It didn't lead him down a good road. Honestly, it didn't lead anyone down a good road. So, while trying to get patronage from Rudolf II, Dee and Kelly resided in Prague for at least a few years. I couldn't really find exactly how many, but a few. However, over time, Dee became more invested in divination work as opposed to alchemy. Whereas, Kelly was more interested in alchemy in comparison to divination work, despite the fact that he had been hired as a divination assistant. Hmm, go figure. Kelly's interest in alchemy was what piqued the interest of Rudolf II, and it's rumored that Dee drove Kelly mad with extensive nightly scrying sessions, causing him to want to seek out Rudolf's attention as an individual rather than as Dee's partner. Eventually, Kelly and Dee's involvement in necromancy caught the attention of the Catholic Church, and on the 27th of March in 1587, they were required to defend themselves in a hearing with the Papal Nuncio. It said Dee handled the interview attacked, but Kelly is said to have infuriated the Nuncio by stating that one of the problems with the Catholic Church is the poor conduct of many of the priests. The nuncio noted in a letter that he was tempted to toss Kelly out the window, which was actually something that was very common in that time period of tossing people out the window. Um, and I believe there's something that happened that kind of kicked off the Thirty Years' War where someone was thrown out a window. But yeah, you get my point. At some point, Dee had acquired cipher manuscripts, possibly written by Roger Bacon, and attempted to translate them. These manuscripts were rediscovered in the 20th century and are still untranslated. Currently, they remain at the Library of Yale and are said to contain the secrets of the natural world. I couldn't really find anything on Dee's attempt at trying to translate these manuscripts, but he was not the only one. Athanasius Kircher also attempted to crack it and did not succeed. And at some point, Rudolf II bought them for 600 ducats, which was a lot of gold at the time. 
It's also rumored that these transcripts were slightly older than Bacon and were either written by Nicholas Flamel or Comte Saint-Germain and or both because, mindfuck, some people believe they were the same person? I don't know. That's a whole nother can of worms for some other time. But yeah, Dee eventually got sick of Kelly for some unknown reason and I think some of us can probably figure out why. He headed back to England and Kelly stayed in Prague and became Rudolf II's occult advisor. His alchemy laboratory in Hostelska Street, otherwise known as the Speculum Alchemy, was linked by underground passages to Prague Castle and Old Town Square, an escape route in case of an emergency because Christendom forbade the practice of alchemy. So, ya boy Kelly had a pretty decent setup. Rudolf knighted him Sir Edward Kelly of Imini and New Lubin on the 23rd of February in 1590. And in May of 1591, Rudolf had Kelly arrested and imprisoned, supposedly for killing an official named Jerry Hunkler in a duel. It is possible that he also just didn't want Kelly to escape before he had actually produced any gold, because he was really commissioned to sort of find or create the Philosopher's Stone. In 1595, Kelly agreed to cooperate and return to his alchemical work, and he was released and restored of his former status. His laboratory in Prague was probably where he spent most of his time at this point, because when you go looking to royalty for money, you know, you have to give them something in order to get paid. And if you don't, if you don't serve them, you're gonna get fucked. You, you just, you're setting yourself up. When he failed to produce any gold, he was again imprisoned. His wife and stepdaughter attempted to hire an imperial counselor who might free Kelly from imprisonment. However, he died a prisoner in late 1597 to early 1598 of injuries he received while attempting to escape. However, it's rumored this is, you know, the court of Rudolf II talking, so I believe that's where I heard this from. This was like an account on behalf of Rudolf II, where he said that he got him an imperial counselor because of, you know, what his wife and stepdaughter were doing. And then in front of them, he took like a cyanide pill or something and just committed suicide. By the way, I'm not laughing about suicide. I'm laughing at the idea that a ruler literally thought I would be tricked into thinking that a man would take a cyanide pill instead of his own freedom when clearly his entire life was about self-gain. I don't believe that happened, especially when there are other people who said that he died from injuries while trying to escape. So I think they just wanted to seem less brutal because, again, Rudolf II was posing as this more tolerant ruler of Catholicism, yes, but due to where his court was and all these other factors, he technically ruled over people who were Protestant and people who were of a more occult nature. And he made it a political point to seem tolerant. So to imprison one of his own, you know, occultists who then would injure himself to escape doesn't paint a very pleasant picture for local occultists trying to make a living.
So now let's talk about the Speculum Alchemy. It was built at the end of the 9th century, also around the time when Prague was founded. It's located near the Golden Alley or Golden Lane, and it's where many of Rudolf's alchemists and goldsmiths lived. It was rediscovered in 2002 after massive floods of the Voltava River in the city unearthed old architecture when a tiny square in front of the building collapsed. Seeing as the building had been used as the home of Edward Kelly, this laboratory was most likely his private laboratory funded by Rudolf II. And I have to point out, this laboratory as well as others were kept in the cellars of the Jewish quarter in Prague due to how the Jewish community was far more tolerant of the occult, whereas in Catholic communities it was still sort of seen in a not great light. Prior to this laboratory being established, it's said that most experiments that occultists were invited to do were performed at Prague Castle with Rudolf II himself being involved. Hidden away in the laboratory were some elixirs and the directions to make them, some of which historians agree were elixirs of life that many aristocrats were buying into. So remember how I mentioned that Rudolf II wouldn't really take the advice of his doctor and would simply seek out occult methods to heal? This was, you know, it was probably the elixir of life he was having people make. And because this laboratory was discovered... We've been able to do a forensic analysis on the items that were found there, like the elixir of life. So, we now know what's in them. And I believe the ones that were found there had alcohol in them, which, oh my god. Um, <laughs> they also had traces of opium, which, you know, you want to make a fancy magical elixir, put opium in it. <laughs> I think they also had piss in them. Don't quote me, I could be wrong, but we know that alchemists were fucking with piss. That was just, that's how we found phosphorus. So, there could have been piss in them. These guys were out here drinking piss. I mean, do what you gotta do, but I don't think piss is helping you, guy. These elixirs became a hot commodity after the Renaissance period due to their reference within the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we do know for certain that Rudolf II's favorite potion was the elixir of eternal youth, and this elixir that he had prepared just for him was made of supposedly 77 herbs and or substances. There were other laboratories similar to Kelly's, one of which being the Wenzel Resui, a laboratory ran by Claudius Cyrus. The successors of Rudolf II were less enamored with alchemy because the church was opposed to alchemy and the magic spells it required. So Rudolf II's successors blocked off any entrance to the laboratory as well as probably many others, and we still don't exactly know if there's others that we don't know about yet. Only time will tell. In the 16th century, the first floor of the building was turned into an herbal pharmacy, and today you can actually still buy elixirs there, hopefully not with piss or alcohol or opiates. That'd be nice. Today, the laboratory serves as a museum for the occult history of Prague. And it is one of many. So yeah, that is my sort of story on Rudolf II, occult Prague, Edward Kelly, and this little hole in the wall, the Speculum Alchemy. And now, sources. Mystical Metal of Gold, Essays on Alchemy and Renaissance Culture, edited by Stanton J. Linden. 
The Alchemical Writings of Edward Kelly by Arthur Edward Waite. Prague During Rule of Rudolf II, Essay by Jacob Weiss for the Met Museum. Rudolf II in Our Time, a BBC radio podcast hosted by Melvin Bragg. The Follies of Science at the Court of Rudolf II by Henry Carrington Bolton. And a whole lot of YouTube tours of the Speculum Alchemy. They're pretty cool. I would go. 10 out of 10 would go. And if you're still here, thank you so much for listening. If you want to say hi, follow me on Instagram. If you want to donate, head to the show notes where I have a link to my Patreon. And again, sharing and reviewing the podcast really helps the growth and just tells people about the podcast. So if you do any of that, thank you so much. And with that, I'll see you on the next one.